0: We are looking at Ecclesiastes, and we're in Ecclesiastes 9 today. We've got uh, counting today four uh, Sundays yet to go until we reach Ecclesiastes 12 in completion. We've been walking through Ecclesiastes as a book of wisdom with the theme being that in this world there is very much that we find meaningless. It's unreasonable. It doesn't seem to be fair or just. Or when I think things are working out and I'm having fun, there's a twist. And I don't understand this. And Solomon says that he applied his mind to search out with all of the wisdom that he had been given as a gift from God to understand life, and understand life under this sun. And we have said that life goes on under this sun, and we do well to listen to Solomon, who is very, very, in Ecclesiastes, he's known as Kahala or the preacher, he's very, very relevant to speak to not only the issues that we face today, but our attitude toward those issues that we face. And be willing, Solomon says, to accept that it is going to appear unreasonable to you, because God is not going to explain himself to you. But it doesn't mean that it's unreasonable to God or outside of His control or hands. It's all going according to His sovereign plan. And for those who fear the Lord, that would be Christians today, for those that have a relationship with His Son and our Lord Jesus Christ, we can survive. And not only survive, but thrive in a life that just doesn't pencil out to be reasonable or make sense. This morning, if I were to, to give an you know, alliteration outline with one word, it would be, first of all, I want us to look at death. Solomon wants us to look and to consider death. Secondly, consider drink. Third, discernment. In verses 1 through uh, 6 here, and if you were to look at verse 3, that would really be a a great uh, theme for these first six verses that there's an evil that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Now he's referring back to verse uh, 1, where he says, there is the righteous and there are the wise, but both of their lives and their activity, their deeds, are in the hands of God. And he says, I don't know if it's love or if it's hate, but God is in control of both of those lives. I can't look at a man or a woman's life and say by the the, the flow of, of, of circumstances, God is obviously hating them. Or look at another and say, God is obviously loving them. And he says, these, these individuals, and as Eugene Peterson would put it in the message, it's one fate for everybody righteous and wicked, good people, bad people, the nice and the nasty. Worshippers and non-worshippers, committed and uncommitted, I find this outrageous. The worst thing about living on earth that everyone is lumped together in one fate. And we see that where he talks about in verse 3, the same event, the same destiny. And that event is our death. So Solomon looks at this and he said, these things, death is ahead of all of us, but in this life that remains, how am I to live in this life in fault of my death? Jerome, or often known as Saint Jerome, is known as a church father. And back when there was just one church, the Roman church, before uh, many, many years later Protestantism was born, it was Jerome that wrote and compiled the first Bible, the Vulgate Before then, it was spread out in many, many pieces and they they didn't know what was most reliable and what was reliable and what they should put into the holy canon, but it was Jerome that did that. If you look at Jerome in ancient art, and a good illustration is the, the painting of Caravaggio. And Caravaggio's painting of Jerome shows him very Thin, balding, with a with a arm stretched out across a, across a huge volume and pile of manuscripts, where he's he's hammering out what God's holy inspired word is, but he's pointing as if he's reaching to hold a skull. A grinning skull. A skull that it was believed he would have collected on his daily walks through the catacombs beneath the library of materials that he was researching. That he would have found a skull that that was all that remained of someone's life. And he would have brought that as a memento mori a memento of death a reminder that that is my fate that is my destiny and i want to live my life in recognition of that now i know you're i know this is kind of funny i don't have a skull on my desk i do have this in my office do you know how hard apart from halloween it is to find a skull um, I, I know I've got some of you guys that are in the medical field, and maybe you could have helped me out, but I think that would have been illegal. So uh, I, I uh, Solomon says that there are those, if you look to um, verse 2, he says, those that do sacrifices and him and who does not sacrifice as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. That's an evil that is done under the sun. Also, down verse 3, the hearts of the children of man, which is code for those that do not fear God. They're, they are not God worshipers. They don't trust God with their fate. They don't look at death and consider it in light of God. But they look at death, they're full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. In other words, if you believe that there is no God who is your creator, and if you have no personal relationship, if you've not been reconciled with this God through Jesus Christ, so that you can look at death and as troubled as we are about it it's 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 troubling and it's upsetting and it's fearful but if we can move past denial or immaturity most children this point most children that are listening i I think about our children that you're talking about death why is that important for me to consider it now It's important to consider because it directs me that my time and my days can be trusted into God's hand. I'm not going to live one day longer. I'm not going to frustrate his plans. I can't make myself live any longer than his plan. But to the wicked, to those that don't have this relationship with God, to those that deny God, they are filled with all sorts of schemes and plans to either cheat death or to deny it. I think about funerals. People are immensely, immensely unreasonable. Unreasonable. They say unreasonable things at funerals. And I have at times. I have the bully pulpit at, at most funerals. I get an opportunity to talk about the promise of resurrection if that person is a follower of Christ. But many people during the funeral will say, well, you know, she is in that great racquetball court. She loved racquetball. She's in that great racquetball court in the sky playing racquetball with Jesus right now. Or, well, you know, she's in the room. She's with us. Or, we will miss her. She's just worm food. They wouldn't say that at a funeral, but that we will miss her, and we will honor her memory because we'll never see her again. But as Christians, in considering our death, are in being Christians who can comfort. We are called as Christians, our duty could be boiled down and distilled into two things toward others. Our duty toward others is to rejoice with those that rejoice. I'm so excited about this Tuesday. I am praying for an opportunity to rejoice with the riches and the birth of a child, but also to mourn with those that mourn. How do we mourn with those that mourn, particularly those that mourn with a death? We can pray and we can be receptive for an opportunity to minister to them. In John 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus ministered to Mary when he said, I'm the resurrection, and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. For everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's what we believe. We may not welcome death. We may be afraid of death. But we are certain that death will come, but it doesn't steal our joy because we have a certainty and a sure promise from Jesus Christ himself that those who die in him will live again. And so Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart Of wisdom. So, consider your memento mori. Consider that skull on your desk, or library, or study. Consider not just saying, "I don't want to," I don't want to think about my death. But how many years have you got left? I think I've got less than twenty. If I look at my family history, I've got less than twenty years. And if I look at that, then I want to walk wisely. I want my death, I want the fact of my death to be something that I don't say in this life, I'm going to live for all the gusto I can get because there's not another life. I am going to spend my life and live my life in the light that I am going to spend eternity with God. Solomon has only the vaguest understanding of this, but Jesus Christ gave us, by the fact of his resurrection and the promise of ours, great comfort when we face death. So we have the comfort of the gospel when we face death. I would encourage you, I would encourage you to look for those opportunities to share that gospel in comfort of others who see death only as something for a lack of all hope and a lack of all joy. Secondly, Solomon not only talks about, or the the preacher here not only talks about the certainty of death, but he says, even in light of death, even in light of Daily hardships in life, drink. Now, i heard a radio preacher this last week that uh, uh, I often listen to in the course of the week. I, I think I won't give his name. I think he's a fantastic uh, Bible commentator. Uh, I think he is, he's great, but I think he is wrong because of his denominational heritage against drinking. Uh, you can drink in moderation. Jesus Christ, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, I believe it was, was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he ate and he drank. He made wine at the party. And I, I don't want to take time out to give any more uh, an endorsement that it's okay to drink, but... This minister went on to say, Never drink. Absolutely never drink. And he gave an illustration of that couple with champagne glass on their wedding day after the ceremony, that at the reception they've got a glass of champagne and they're, they're clinking their glasses together to drink the champagne to toast that event. He says, That cup will destroy them. Taking in that that wine on that occasion, we should never drink. He says, I, I, I will never go to any organized sports because every one of them, you are there with your friends and you're there to be with your friends and enjoy the sport and they're selling beer. And somebody pours beer down the back of my neck and I don't like it. And, and he's he really stern with that. Now again, not a heretic. I, I disagree with him, and I disagree with his application across the board that a Christian is wrong to drink. Ecclesiastes here is not saying, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32 what do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with these at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us drink for tomorrow we die. Paul, in other words, is not saying because death is ahead of us to all, because life changes and it seems so unfair, and because life is so hard that it doesn't seem reasonable and it, it just doesn't make sense, go out and get drunk. Paul is not saying at the at the the funeral of someone to get toasted afterwards to just get numb because of life. No. Paul is, I mean, uh, Ecclesiastes is agreeing with Paul in the sense of saying there is a promised life with God that we can celebrate, though life is very hard. Look at um, verse 7. He says, you know, eat your bread with joy. That means gusto. Drink your wine with a merry heart. That's that's a passionate heart. That's celebrative. Elsewhere, he says, drinking wine to make us merry, to enliven the heart, to bring out the laughter. And then, why? Why? Because God has already approved what you do. Having the approval, having being in a relationship with God where I feel that comforting cover and weight of His approval that even in life's difficulty allows me to translate the, that life. That life is hard. And life seems unfair. And life doesn't calculate reasonableness to me. But I can trust God. God, that it's not because he's trying to put a thumb and press the life out of me. It's life in a fallen world. And things are not going to our plan, but it doesn't mean that I don't have God's approval. And that's the gospel. That Jesus Christ his life and his death is called the, the great exchange. If it were all recorded, my deeds and my sin, my life, it's as if when I receive Christ, all of his life now and all and because of his death is given to me. So that I have the same approval as a child of God that Jesus Christ has from his father. Did Hard things come to Christ? Indeed, yes. But I believe that Christ was ever able to be faithful, to praise, and to celebrate, and to, and to and to laugh with his disciples given opportunity, because he knew that it was God's plan. He knew that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he could face all the myriad of difficulties, the most difficult. Life, anyone would ever know. In verse 9, he says, Enjoy the life, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, your meaningless life, the, the things that don't add up. Enjoy life, even though it doesn't add up. That He's given to you under the sun, He is the author of our life, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. In other words, as I put on the outline, for the hard work of staying alive, you get to enjoy the party. Now, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to drink. Now, no. I'll take that back because that maybe the tape will stutter or something there. Podcast. <coughs> Put drink in uh, quotes, air quotes. It might be rocky road ice cream, have two scoops. It might be um, it might be a caramel macchiato, the large one with chocolate sprinkles on top. Meet your friend, meet your girlfriend. Meet your friend, your guy, friend, or friends for a pint. What's stopping you? Invite them into your home or make a plan to go out. And just celebrate. Celebrate a break. Celebrate surviving another week. Celebrate with them and their life, and their way. That's what Solomon's saying. Remember, this is the wisest man in the world, and he's saying, life is hard, and I believe in part he's saying, you're not made to get through this life without your mate being your wife, your husband, and the intimacy there of joy and that you can take moments and celebrate, or other mates good friends, circle of friends, and they may not be believers. They may not be believers. You can enjoy, maybe it's a club, maybe it's a CrossFit group, but he's saying, listen, life is so hard that God has given to us friendships and wives and husbands, next-door neighbors, Get to know them. Spend time with them. Laugh. Laugh when you're given an opportunity. Because life is hard. And then lastly, Solomon looks at discernment or wisdom. So Solomon has said, live your life in light of your death. What does that look like for you? How does that influence today or tomorrow, to know of the certainty of your death. Live. What does it look like to know that God's not mad when you have a drink with a friend of any variety? In fact, He not only approves of it, but it brings Him pleasure to hear you laugh or to see you in the companion of friends that can take opportunity to celebrate and rejoice with you. And then, now He says, Pursue wisdom, pursue discernment, that we might be able to live in the uncertainties of this life, not only for ourselves, to discern for myself and to wisely walk, but also for the deliverance of others, for the support, for the ministry to comfort as I'm comforted, to counsel as I'm, I'm growing and understand, to apply the mind of Christ not only to, to my life but to others. Wisdom is better than muscle in facing life's battles, snares, and sins. Psalm 19, verse 7 says... The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, the law, it means everything. Don't get hung up by thinking just Ten Commandments or the book of Leviticus. Think about all all of God's words are His decrees. So all of His words are the law, The, the way that God operates and the way that people operate under God. The law of the Lord is perfect. Nothing's missing. It's not incomplete. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. In verse 11, he says that, Eugene Peterson for verse 11 says, I walked again in the neighborhood. I like that. He says, so I went again, I got outside of the palace, four walls, and I started walking through my neighborhood. And I started looking, and I said, wow, there's somebody that is really, really strong, but it didn't do him any good in battle. And then he goes through this litany of saying, these gifts are these seeming human capacity." To be successful doesn't add up. It is not reasonable to say, because you have the capacity to be successful, that you will be successful. And frankly, this is very, very surprising still to many of us. Goliath, one of the strongest men next to Samson, but one of the, certainly during that time, he was the, the strongest man on the battlefield. But Goliath fell from the weakest, a shepherd boy, not with instruments of war, but with a sling. Joab's brother was the fastest man recorded in Scripture. He could outrun anybody. And he ran so fast that when he finally caught the enemy, another man, he was run through with a spear over and over again. Solomon, the richest man and the wisest ever lived, yet his life fell down in a shambles in the end. Even his wisdom did not avail him. And so Ecclesiastes, the preacher is saying, listen, don't be taken com- by complete surprise. Hold your plans with a very loose grip. Certainly pray and present them to God. But at the same time, ask for God, what is your wisdom? What is your testimony? What is your decrees? What do you will? And it won't be forthcoming in an evening or a morning. It will be Many times it will unfold even over a lifetime. Verse 13 through 16, Solomon gives us an example. An example where a city is laid siege by a very powerful king. But there's a a poor man. Not a lot of substance, certainly not a lot of power or influence. But he's a wise man. He's very discerning. And he's able to deliver the city from the hands of this king that perhaps would enslave them. But then he's soon forgotten. Verse 13 of James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, you can be a very discerning, wise person. But because of your own personal agenda, you won't apply your wisdom or discernment because you're not, it's not going to promote you. Or you can be jealous of someone and wanting to see them fall, you will not be helpful. But not this poor man. This man didn't say, you've overlooked me. Now I'm, not, I'm just going to let this king roll in. Who knows, there may be a place for me in his government. I may get a promotion with my wisdom He doesn't do that. But with his wisdom, with his poverty, with his humility, he's willing to use his wisdom. And verse 15 of James 3, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile Practice. But the wisdom from above looks like this pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. When I look at that. one wiser and greater than Solomon comes to mind. And that is Jesus. That is Jesus who promises elsewhere in James, James chapter 1, that if any man wants for wisdom, that God will give that person wisdom. And that wisdom is the very words of God that will guide our life through all of these uncertainties. And that word is Jesus. God gives more than simply words. He gives a person to guide us. A shepherd. A wise one. Who in His humility and in His poverty and in His meekness leads us. He's approachable. He is not He is willing to lead us again. He is willing to give us again the wisdom that we need, not only for our own deliverance, but for others that we're in community or family or fellowship with. I tell you, the Scriptures are filled with how wisdom puffs people up, but not Jesus. Jesus said, I, nobody ever taught like Jesus. Nobody ever spoke like Jesus. And he always spoke to the most receptive who were the hungriest, the lowest, and the neediest. And so we come to this table, and I pray, I want to encourage you, in light of the uncertainties of life, in light of our own future death, in light of the surprises that we encounter and the need for wisdom, come to this table with a prayer. Come to this table and say, I need to find you in my besieged city again that wise one, that quiet one. And Jesus, I invite you again to lead me over all of my plans. I surrender all of my plans. I can't rescue myself in my current circumstances. Deliver me and my family. Deliver me and my city. For it is opposed. And my future is uncertain, but not you. Find and ask and invite Jesus again to come in and to deliver you, to lead you in all wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would lead us to this table with humility that we observe your death at this table, but we're mindful also that one day we shall die. This is a table not of seriousness and solemnity, but it's also a table that we drink at. And we celebrate. We celebrate your death on our behalf until your promised return. We celebrate your death because it means that we will not have to die either this terrible a death, but that as we close our eyes in death, we will open them just as quick in the resurrection, and new life with you forever. We hold to that promise, and it gives us hope, and it gives us peace. And so we can celebrate, we can celebrate, even in life with all of its uncertainties. But at the same time, Father, we ask that you give us your wisdom, that you give us Jesus yourself, that you would take our plans, you would take our heart, you would take our mind, you would lead our lives. And you would lead our lives to not only for our own good, but in the deliverance of others, for the good of others. Use us. So Father, we ask for these things from your hand at this table. In Christ's name, amen.